dignidad. But can I ask you, how do you define dignity? Dignity. Dignity. Anytime I try to define it, I end up reducing it down to things like dignity. I think that way of thinking about dignity misses a lot of really important work that the concept dignity does in people's day-to-day -day lives. Dignity. 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 Dignidad. Dignidad. Tell me, what do you think about? And then dignity. There are two words in Persian word for dignity. Keramat. Translated into Bengali is Murjada. Concept of dignity that underpins all kind of human rights theory. It is still this like really contested subject. Dignity is such a good word. In Hindi, Mariada. In colloquial Hindi, Shan. I'm responsible for my own sense of dignity. I've got nothing more to say about dignity than I said before. Dignity is at that root. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Ask others to do for others as they would wish to be done for themselves. Welcome to the Dignity Initiative podcast. This interdisciplinary research project responds to the recent imperatives to better understand the notion of dignity. It explores the social context in which an individual's dignity can be actualized or painfully ruptured. The need to protect dignity is limited without a clear definition of what exactly it is. It is a grounding concept underpinning international human rights theory, but in spite of that fact, dignity is a complex, multifaceted, and highly contested concept. We assembled a multidisciplinary team. It includes philosophers, psychiatrists, anthropologists, neuroscientists, and epidemiologists collaborating across multiple universities. Alongside scholars, we have experts in international development and gender at UNICEF. Together, they examine the institutional, social, material, and psychological contexts that enable dignity. The research team pays close attention to various things. The feminist and culturally appropriate conceptualizations of dignity, its relation to inequality in various geographical, economic, and cultural settings. And finally, it explores the question of how dignity may be measured. This project is centered at McGill University, Montreal, funded by the Foundation for Psychocultural Research in Los Angeles, and collaborates closely with UNICEF. McGill's partnering offices include the Division of Social and Transcultural Psychiatry, the Institute for Health and Social Policy, and the School of Population and Global Health. In this edition of the Dignity Initiative podcast, meet Samuel Bickle, former Senior Advisor of Evaluation and Research at the UNICEF Region Office for South Asia, which is a leading global organization that helps build a world where the rights of every child are realized. There, he facilitated UNICEF to determine the impact of programs supporting children across the South Asian region nations of Maldives, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and India. Nancy Ferranti spoke with Samuel Bickle. Sam, you've been pivotal in initiating research and advocacy work on the theme of dignity at UNICEF. 
and in many ways instrumental to helping lay the seeds for this work at the Dignity Initiative. It's such a pleasure to talk to you and hear your reflections knowing how committed you are to the concept of dignity as an important notion to organize our thinking around in relation to health, healthcare, research and programming. Dignity is hard to define. In some contexts, the term refers to some special intrinsic value all humans possess by virtue of being human. And this absolute and inherent definition of dignity presupposes an equal worth of all humans that has really laid the foundation for universal human rights charters, campaigns, a lot of the work and goals that UNICEF does. In other contexts, though, dignity refers to a dynamic value a person can gain or lose and related to concepts like status, autonomy, self-worth, shame, respect, agency. You were an evaluations and research advisor at UNICEF, working in the region of South Asia during the latter part of your career. And after reviewing a lot and uh, prepping for this interview, I noticed that dignity is a term that comes up across UNICEF's work in a range of different contexts, um, whether that be as a benchmark for initiative goals, guiding principles for ethical research, programming, etc. Um, to start off today, I was just wondering if you could expand on this and talk a bit more about how the concept of dignity is relevant to UNICEF's work and goals broadly. And um, can you tell us a little bit about your role and reasons for pushing forward with dignity as a central concept for UNICEF to work with? Well, thank you. Thank you for the chance to, to speak. I think with the dignity in UNICEF, UNICEF always subscribes and adheres to the UN charter and the word is there, but I've never seen it or never saw it as a consistent emphasis in, in any of the program areas, at least where it was drawn out and particularly identified. Yet it would always be there beneath the surface as something that people understood was important, but to program toward it, to make it an active part of the thinking uh, was, was rarely done. I mean, there, there are some instances which I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll speak toward. And even to this day, I, I think that it, the, the people that grapple with it are doing it almost in isolation. So the teams that work on gender are thinking about the dignity of the girl child and how to promote that in the media. And then the persons over in, in health and nutrition that are working on trying to get equal access to, to, to um, uh, equal, you know, um, for the parents to treat their children equally, will be thinking about it, not necessarily talking to the gender folks. One of the earliest instances that I recall it really coming forward um, was in the course of about 2008 to 2015, UNICEF undertook a large number of impact evaluations around social protection mm. transfers and conditional cash grants, unconditional cash grants. And so in the evaluation office where I was at the time, we decided to do a synthesis of these for the UNICEF's executive board. And we looked at what were the perceived benefits and things that had been measured and these various evaluations at several instances had said, let's do, um, uh, we're going to do household budgets. What did the people spend the money on when they got it? And they were actually looking out, or oh, are they spending it on drugs? Are they spending it on tobacco and alcohol? And what they found was that they found almost none of that, but they did find a strong and perceptible investment in things that we would consider pro-dignity. Some of the very, very poorest families people sometimes literally living in caves, but other times just at the very low part of the income spectrum would do things like buy shampoo and, and de-licing um, uh, medicine because their children were embarrassed and didn't want to go to school. 
things like small toys for disabled children so that the children have something to play with and the, and the parents would feel that they were fulfilling that role of a parent. And that was so consistent across these global evaluations and these global efforts that it made you believe that there had to be some underlying dynamic or drive there. Now, now mm -hmm. I was gonna say, when you say pro-dignity, um, is that the term you guys mapped on to the behaviors you were seeing after the fact or did the people you were observing actually use that word as well? No, the, 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 the persons would use that. Why, why did you do this? Well, of course there's a functional and pragmatic thing. Our children need to uh, feel comfortable at school and we want our neighbors to understand that we love our disabled child, but we haven't been able to do the extras for, for them. So there is a, a language but then when you go underneath it, well, but still, you know, why this? What's the value that you get out of it? And then oftentimes it's that social construct of dignity. Uh, now people will see that we really do care. We will be elevated in esteem in the others because we have met their minimum expectations of cleanliness, of, of love, of, of um, education. But also it was intrinsic that the child who smiles because they have now that, that level of, I don't want to keep hyping on, on hygiene, but preparedness and readiness and ability to go to, go to school feels beloved, feels um, you know, very much an individual who has, has been taken notice of by the adult world and by others. And by the way, the, the one part I'll, I'll, I'll say now may not recur very often is that when I think about UNICEF's approach and, and many others approach in the development world, they think of it in these terms of human rights, these, these uh, uh, rooted concepts in, in philosophy, but they don't speak of it very much in religious terms. And yet the people that when you speak to them or when you do the programming, you better be able to understand that that's how they interpret their lives, that that's how they want to be perceived, that they are beloved of God, that they are part of a, a community of believers that has a role and that through that, they themselves are important, both in the mass and in, 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 in the individual. And, and UNICEF has found it hard to speak to that group. They tend to instrumentalize uh, the religious uh, parties. Can you help us on ending genital mutilation? Can you help us in encouraging people to get vaccinated? But in and of itself, we value your spiritual life. What can programming do to make it easier or can, can, what, what can we find in your doctrine that is essential about dignity, about raising life, that we can echo and say it's wonderful and, and, and not even have to try and use it as part of our, our programming. We don't speak that very much. And so in, in what we often heard or what we often hear is that people speak that language, that religious language, and we don't know exactly know what to do about it. And we can come mm -hmm. back at it from services and and other kinds of things, but we don't know how to, how to grapple with that. And yet in the conceptualization of dignity, one of the primary roots is out of faith. And both, um, if you feel that you haven't reached a proper level of dignity, you may feel, you know, you're not acting as a believer should, then you feel guilty, you feel you've transgressed. You may, on the other hand, feel um, benighted and, 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 and love because you're fulfilling it. You may feel out of odds with your faith, but you feel challenged and exhilarated because you're a reformer. And all of those things have analogies in, in the social life um, and, and in communities. 
but it is also very important to tap that that religious root as well. Um, yeah, that's interesting because I dignity has such strong roots in theology and religious beliefs, but it's never talked like I haven't seen it talked about across any UNICEF's work or in things like that. Mm -hmm. um, you're talking about how you know people might not feel like they're doing enough to live up to their to have that dignity or things like that. Is there also a notion of an inherent absolute dignity that you can't gain or lose that every person has? How does that um, yeah, it's, motivate uh, or impact well, that works? Yeah. Yeah, this is one of those times maybe when uh, myself and others would have to step outside of their own individual upbringing and trying try to see what's what's common at a more global level. Um, we, we see the sociology, we, we, we hear that there are societies that are so intensely communal that people really are not exhibiting their own thoughts, but they are reflecting or they're taking their, their sense of self from the reflection that they get from others. Um, that's, there, are, there are societies that are highly controlling and don't seem to make room for a lot of individualism. But at the same time, it's such an inherent thing you, you you live within yourself you have your perceptions and your emotions your feelings and often persons want to do things that are different from what the society around wants them to do so how do they nurture that how do they justify that and if it's not just something that's oh you know i want to go and smash and grab and take it's the 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 ego saying i'm superior to everybody else or rather it's the super ego and let me let, uh, uh, I'm, i've got to keep myself under control i can't keep myself under control that kind of dialogue, rather that, you know, I am entitled, I am a living person, I'm one of the, 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 the billions on the earth, and I have the equal right of everybody else. And then when it becomes a positive thing, they raise their hand, the child that, that quietly questions the parents, why is it like this? Why doesn't the teacher call on me, for example? Why would they think that if they were only reflecting what comes from the outside? So I think it's very much an inherent thing, but it can be compressed and, and repressed in, in many places. Now, there are societies that, are, that, that have philosophical traditions that more exemplify or, or encourage individualism and say that everybody has uh, the equal rights. And they're trying hard to, to enshrine that in their codes and their laws and their behaviors. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of social pressure that occurs in even these societies, um, whether it's the the, the, the reflection of wealth in your house and things like that, or was the body image and the clothing of the kids. So you may have these poles, but they're not, they, they never become too far separated from each other because there's the individual within the communal and there's the communal referencing even within the highly individualized uh, uh, contexts. Yeah, I think that's one reason dignity is such a hard concept to look at in different places because the the allied concept is related to have such different meaning depending on if you're an individualistic versus collectivist culture um whether like ideas of autonomy even exist where you are things like that um but going back to what you were saying about the child dignity and starting to question things etc i was reading in preparation i was reading um a guidelines for children's research from Eric and 
dignity came up a lot across the research guidelines for working with children as something to uphold. Can you talk a little bit about how what respecting a child's dignity in research or program planning might look like or even mean? Anyone that's that's been a parent or been around children know that they they can have their will overridden fairly easily. One of the reasons that that youths are conscripted into armies for use for for child soldiers is that they can be compelled, psychologically compelled as well as physically compelled to do atrocious things. That's an extreme. But any parent knows that they can order their child to do things and the child will do it, even if they hate it even if they don't want to do it. And that's part of a intrinsic human phenomenon between the adult and the child. So respecting the dignity of the child is, is to refrain from using that power, from not turning over to the child the right to make the decision, but turning to both of you to say, let's have a discussion about this. What can we do together? How can I help you in this situation? Or where are you uncertain? What is it that, that you need to do in order to feel more confident? And in the case of things like uh, um, uh, Eric, the ethical research involving children, uh, all of these things come into play. Children in these instances, when you're out doing research, there's some problem that you're trying to understand or some solution you wanna see if it works. So you can, if you are not benign, you can compel them to answer say sensitive things in front of adults, make them hint to them that you want a certain kind of answer, testify against their own beliefs, and otherwise make it very uncomfortable for them in the direct interaction with you, but also perhaps exposing them to consequences afterwards. We've had, I had many instances, even before I joined UNICEF, where we had to watch out because if we asked questions in a group context, the children would raise their hand and start talking. The, on, the honest truth, and the adults wanted to shade that or keep that hidden. Well, okay, you know, if you can hear it, but you may be exposing that, that child to retribution afterwards. So it means being very sensitive toward that adult-child dynamic, trying to find ways to ask things in, in comfortable ways, making sure that they know they don't have to understand in a certain way or, or, understand, or, or, or answer at all, to cease or moderate whenever you see the least form of of, of trouble or, or you know psychological discomfiture. Um, part of the ethical things too is if you are going to discuss the the, the problems or the, the issues that can really uh, bring out uh, trauma, traumatic emotions or traumatic memories, you have to have some way to be able to cope with that. Some resources that you can guide the parents to or something on standby. Sometimes you're not aware that you will trigger, but you should be prepared. If you're gonna go talking about talk about psycho, uh, psychosocial stress, about experiences in wartime, about violence, about being kicked out of school, about being deeply impoverished and ashamed. These are things that, that children can feel deep down in their soul. And so part of that ethics is already pre, pre-visioning what might happen and be ready to, to help cope with that, whether the services or backing off or, or whatever you know the, the, the local context would allow you to do. Moving on from talking about UNICEF more broadly, I was wondering how dignity has come up in your work specifically at UNICEF, particularly in regards to 
how dignity relates to what you were doing in South Asia and imperatives to advance gender equality and girls' rights? I was in one of those polymath professions. I was in evaluation and research. So we were in support of the education folks, the child protection folks, the health and nutrition, social protection, and so on. And that gave us a good window into the different theories of change, the different sociologies across the region, but also across the, the disciplines. It came up again and again and again, often that they were very much aware of it. And other times in which when we reframed it in a kind of vocabulary, we would get a different kind of response and understanding. I'm talking now from my professional colleagues and then through them, they would then be working with the country offices or the or the- Can locals. you maybe give an example of that reframing? Yeah, sure. So in, in, in many of the countries, the government has programs that depend on volunteer health workers, community health workers, traditional birth attendants. There's a wide variety of things. Sometimes they're there about drowning and specific things. Other times they're, they're more holistic. When those are volunteer uh, positions, you find them flooded with women, or rather you do not find them flooded with men. And it's considered socially acceptable for the women to go around, especially since a lot of these issues of domesticity and healthcare and so on are considered the, the maternal role. As soon as those positions are commodified and there's even the tiniest bit of money attached to them, then the men come in and start elbowing the women aside, All right? So what's at play here? Well, is it the concept of volunteerism is not dignified for the man? It's, is it that uh, anything that can be used to bring money into the household is something that men consider their right and women don't have that right? Is it that men's voice is considered more authoritative and okay, the money is now saying that, oh, this really is an important one and, the, and the, the family should listen to it and they won't listen unless they get the, the male voice. You know, it's, it's a combination of things, but at the bottom, it's the women who have been doing this, the women who are, who are positioned to do it, want to do it and love to do it, don't have the right to do that. They, we are not going to give them the dignity of, of that self-esteem, of that income earning power, and we're going to push them aside. That is a clear example. Another one in the, in, in the more healthcare field or, or the, the, the healthcare seeking field. Um, if you see statistics that tell you that for the same set of symptoms, 60% of those that are being taken to the health centers are boys and only 40% are girls, then you know that there is more valuing of boy suffering, that they are considered to have their dignity impaired or the dignity of the family requires that that boy survive and be given the treatment. And for the girl, not as much. And sometimes 60-40 is a very low ratio. It might be 75-25, yeah. three to one. So there's no explanation that, that exists outside of the psychology and sociology of, of the male and female view. On a, on a more positive um, one where, where we started seeing some some traction. Many traditional societies, um, but often centered in rural areas, but not only, will say that the dignity of the family requires that the girl be married at the age of 13, 14, 15, something like that, all right? So UNICEF is part of its human rights agenda and, and many tens of millions of people in these countries feel that that is not the right thing. That is not what, what the concept of dignity says, but definitely it's not what the human rights charter and often the constitution say. And yet still it goes on and on and on and on and on. There's a sense that that family dignity, the social dignity requires. What the girl wants does not matter. Even if she attests that she wants to get married, we know 
from, from the research that we've done, that they are often frightened. They are physically frightened. They're being torn from their families. They're not ready for childbearing. They don't want to give up their school. There is no way they would voluntarily select this. So what can you do about it? Well, you can try and outlaw it. That just drives it underground. What they found is you try to reframe what dignity means. And the, many of the families will start to listen where it is, yes, it's a great thing for a human being to be married. We want that. Religion encourages it. Society needs it. But does it have to be at that age? Maybe if you hold off just for a few years, just for a few years, your daughter will be better able to raise the children and she'll have learned a lot in school that will allow her to earn more out in the world and take care of you, the parents, and be an ornament to the community and to the family. So you can't overturn that social belief, but you can try and reposition it where you expand that concept of dignity to what the girl can bring to the house, to the family afterwards. And then sometimes you need to make a, a, a trade and even just a little bit of investment in the cash grant. One of the pieces of research that occurred in, in India, not, not by UNICEF, but by another agency showed that uh, just the provision of cooking oil, something like the equivalent of, of six liters of cooking oil a month was enough to keep the families motivated to keep the girl in school until the age of 18. Now you say, okay, we haven't really converted the psychology away from the girl should get married. Um, there's a heavy duty and social pressure, but at least we've been able to, to say that the expanded version of dignity means it will happen when she's more mature, when she's, and then when she has more of a chance to, to say no or to move away, that we can't say that that's our goal. That isn't our goal, but to, to develop the sense of agency and social power that comes with education, comes with maturity, and then to let nature take its course may mean that in the end, she makes alternative choices, but communities are slowly coming to, to accept this. So in, in every single field that we dealt with, in every single area, we could see that. We could see the concepts of dignity. There's a few of the things. I mean, anytime in emergencies and anything else, we always found that it was one of the factors and often a very important driving factor in, in behavior. Um, thank you for all those examples. And you talk about a lot of different types of dignity, like dignity that is self-perceived like those women you were talking about or social dignity, family dignity, like women getting married. Um, do you think this expanded dignity, like a more expanded concept of dignity is the way to start introducing this and that is what we should try to quantify? Or do you think these separate measures within dignity, like the different factors that influence it, family, outside, subjective, feelings, et cetera, should be separated and broken down? Uh, I don't think you're ever going to have a universal single measure of dignity. It's got these different roots from the intrinsic feel and also social, but then the social takes many different forms and, and definitions. So how could you come at, at just one that everybody would agree on? Um, you know, even if we came at one, it would probably be a secular one and then would that be convincing also to people that think religiously? So why not have multiple methods? I mean, there's very few things in which we need to just come down to one form and say, this is the, the most relevant. So no, I, I would prefer to have a suite of things that you can use and find the ones that are most convincing 
you know, in, the, in our jargon, I mean, most valid, most accurately measuring the thing you want to measure, but also reliable. Others doing it would get the same result, but also persuasive to the audience. If it's not persuasive, it doesn't matter how valid and, and how reliable it is and, the, and how important it is in relation to to other things. In North America and the West, dignity is thought of as a very important concept already, but no one really knows what it means. And we see how this comes up. And like, for example, I was reading about the dignity kits that UNFPA and UNICEF are giving out. And I was reading an evaluation report on them. And one of their biggest limitations was the reliance on the concept of dignity, because although it was this hugely important term and idea in the project when they were asking the informants what it meant no one knew they couldn't measure it and so it's interesting because I already I think dignity is already persuasive in a sense like it has a lot of social clout but there's almost like nothing to back it up now the the phrase that when when you go there there's no there there people say well what is it it's evanescent I can't grab it I can't I can't show it to you it's not a thing well you know show me show me love show me pull that out of the air and show me that this is what it is right show me fealty show me honor show me loyalty these are all social concepts we know what they mean and people know what dignity is i think what happens in the instances like the the dignity kits is that they're saying well you know if we don't have an agreed common definition we won't ever know if we've had the effect that we want to have and so what's driving it is not a disrespect for dignity, but it's that compulsive need to have a certain kind of, of tangible certainty about the thing you're measuring. And so what, what we've often, what we felt in my time in UNICEF was that it wasn't dignity alone that you needed to measure, but you needed to do dignity and protection, dignity and family, dignity and social respect, dignity and violence or you know, the, the, the affiliations, the links between uh, those things, right? And if, if you move it off to spot from, well, what is dignity and how do we measure it? But and more toward, well, what explains this phenomenon that we're seeing? Then people oh. themselves will use language and will come up with theories or push and pull factors that show that they, they clearly understand it. They know that girls do not go to school around the period, the times that they had their period, unless they can have safe access, clean clothes, and, and things like that. They, they know that. Why would they think then that there's something that is other than dignity at the root of the reluctance and the, and the uh, sense of exposure that, that girls manifest? But they want some kind of, of measurable proof. Sometimes that's going to be hard. But then also what is considered, what is considered the kind of proof? If a group of people say, this is what I feel, and they use the words and the concepts of dignity, why not valorize it? I mean, we do it for other things. If someone says, I feel rich, I feel I'm on top of the world, but we understand some of these things. If they say, I feel dignified, then I, I accept that because it's not something that people tend to tend to use lightly. They don't say it lightly. And then, oh, yeah, I, I remember, I mean, it was, it was back in, uh, what is it? Um, something like 2002, I was down with, I was working with UNICEF and uh, the, the, the regional office for Latin America and the Caribbean when we were in Panama City. And I think that was when Hurricane Mitch hit um, somewhere in Central America, a huge hurricane, just devastated, uh, you know, less Costa Rica, but Honduras, El Salvador, and so on. And our social protection advisor uh, had control of some money. 
And she made sure that for the first time, the menstrual pads and things like that were purchased and brought to the shelters. And boy, does she get a lot of grief for that. That's extraneous. That's not life-saving. She said, oh, you don't think so? You don't think uh, uh, that, that, that their ability to take care of themselves and their family is not connected to their ability to feel clean, that they don't be hiding away, but also even if it isn't life, uh, is something that's necessary for life like food and, and shelter is, it's necessary for them to feel like they are part of the human community, that their needs are being met as well as some of these other needs. Why don't they have their claim on our attention? And it's so cheap, so easy to do. So that was, and, and I mean, that was now 20 years ago. And I've, I've, it's been nice to see how that first identification that I was aware of, of menstrual issues being important in terms of dignity, but also being linked to programming has now become multiple areas. Menstrual hygiene management is one of the main things that is done at that intersection of gender and, and, and water and health services, for example. So like, let's take the example of menstrual hygiene management. How do you think um, a better conceptualization of dignity or something a bit less abstract could benefit those kinds of programming? Or do you think it, it wouldn't that dignity is okay the way it is? I was saying earlier that, that UNICEF and others tend to instrumentalize religion. You can instrumentalize dignity too. If you say that the reason that we want to get into menstrual hygiene management is to encourage girls' education, therefore more completing income and so on, then what happens if it doesn't? Because there's good testimony, good evidence that shows that school latrines and menstrual hygiene management don't have a long-term effect on attendance, completion, and, and educational and, and learning. So does that mean these initiatives fail? Or does it mean maybe that we haven't yet detected it? And the first answer should be, it doesn't matter because the girls' distress, their sense of being outside the, the loved community because no one is helping them and something they feel very personal about and very, very upset about, that in and of itself is reason to do it. That's, and that's one of the prime things when we talk about the intrinsic dignity, we respond to it because it's important to the person and not because it's a pathway to something else. But if it is a pathway to something else, wonderful. Then yes, we need to measure it, but we also need to measure those other things. To give a, a, a non-wash example, one of the significant barriers to girls' attendance to schools in many parts of South Asia is the fact that they have to get from their house to the school and they have to take public transit to do it. And on that public transit, they are ridiculed or they are groped or molested in various ways and they will not do it or their parents won't let them go because they see that and, and they're in pain for their daughters, but they have no alternatives. That is something where there's a clear dignity element, but you can't just tell the girls and the parents, oh, you shouldn't feel that way. Oh, it's great to go to school. They already know that. You have to find a way to either create safe settings, which may be girls only buses or monitors, or you have to take that long-term process of trying to, to change the mentality of the people that say it's good for girls to go to school and no one should do this and if you see it happening step in and if we catch you doing it you're not going to get a slap on the wrist you're going to get you know you're going to go to jail or something else so again you do it because it's right if it has that connection to something else even better because now you're solving two issues at once 
but we don't just do it because it's in, because it's instrumental now. So for instance, in that example, besides protecting girls' dignity is, you know, we're protecting girls from gender based violence and other things. Push back a little, what does dignity bring to the table that we couldn't just define by talking about violence or protecting these girls or having them be safe? What does the concept of dignity add to add to that or add to our understanding? I'll come to your example. Well, let's take one where maybe it's it's easier to, to visualize. What is the rationale for beating a child, your own child? Why, why, why would you do that? But it happens. 30, 40% of the families in South Asia, at least in some of the countries, feel it is absolutely essential to beat the child if they do any kind of misbehavior, that that's part of the parent's role. When they do the surveys of when is it acceptable for a husband to hit a wife, a, a large percentage of the women will say, if the food was not to his liking, if I withheld sex from him because I didn't want to, it's okay for him to beat me. Now, what is the what, what can you do in that instance? If you look at it from the point of view of dignity, you would say, you know, you the parent would never allow somebody to come and hit you and beat you. Why do you think that child has so little dignity, null dignity compared mm -hmm. to you that you can just do that with impunity? What is in your mind? Now that's sort of an accusatory way of framing it, but now when we stand back, we would say, we can't solve this problem unless we talk about what it means to be a child, the powerlessness, the fact that they have rights, that they have, they have feelings that you're not supposed to do that, that you would not like that being done to you. Because so many of these, so many of these social ills that we talk about, you know, beyond there are beyond the realm of public services, there's not going to be a policeman in every house. It has to be self-organized, self-controlled behavior. And that requires seeing the other person as human with equal, with equal dignity. Not to get back to the, to the, to, to the violence against uh, girls. There absolutely is a role for, for policing and proctors and monitors. There have been um, one of the interventions they have, they have uh, UNICEF was working in, in the Calcutta area, in the rural areas with, on these kinds of issues with girls' school groups. And they did things like mapped out, where, what are the points of vulnerability getting to school and what happens and why. And they came to some of these issues that we were talking about. Now, what are we going to do about it? Then they said, well, we want to have people that will walk with us. We want to have more policemen there. We want punishment if it gets severe. And they mobilized the town, but the, and, and the towns or the villages, the, the communities. Why would the communities respond? Because they were showing themselves to be claiming their own rights, doing it in a language that people mm -hmm. said, yes, you, you have that right. It's not something that you're losing education, it's that your dignity is being impaired. And we don't, we, we don't agree to that. Now there can be a real fight that goes on for a long time in, in small societies or big societies about this, but the fight is around that. It's not going to be solved unless there is also that recognition of the agency and humanity and the right of the other persons to, to say, I don't, I shouldn't have to have this happen to me. You wouldn't want it to happen to you. Why can you let it happen to me? What are some methods and ways UNICEF and different programs can create culturally relevant definitions of dignity for areas they're working with and interventions that would bridge those gaps like you were just talking about between girls' dignity, what they want and what's happening in society? 
most of the examples that I've been giving have to do with on the ground kinds of issues in which solving them requires changing mentalities. Some things like maybe the, the uh, village health workers, it's not that you could have a government policy that we're going to have 50% male, 50% female, or the best qualified person. And the government could make that happen and override some, some local opposition. Many of the things you can do that appeal, that psychological reshaping, other times it's systems. But one of the bigger things that not just UNICEF, but others are thinking about it is that broad visioning that occurs within a society about what does it mean to be a girl or a woman, or what does it mean to be someone that is coming from a rural area is often considered to be stupid and able to be exploited, dumb, you're just a stupid farmer, you know, that kind of nonsense. That language is not exclusive to that region. Uh, in the United States, we talk about rednecks as if somehow yeah. working outside is a bad thing, right? One of the partners that UNICEF has, or rather one of the partners that they have is us, um, if you're familiar with the work of the Gina Davis Institute. And she has used her, her power and her influence and her, her, her uh, uh, deep understanding to start a very, very strong group of researchers, but more than that, in the media space. And the first thing they do is they say, let's count. Let's just see what the imaging is of girls in particular, but now they can do other groups, right? Sexual minorities and, and racial minorities and so on. And they will look at, might be a hundred million ads um, on internet or on TV or programming. And they will come back and tell you that say, you know, in the last week of television programming in the United States, the number of words that were spoken in primetime dramas was 82% men and 18% women. And that 18% women were often in servile things. Do you want to do this? How can I help you? And so on. Those numbers would probably be in the, in the past. They're not so much in the West now, but it's certainly true in places like South Asia. And now you had that information and you realize that that is telling you that the world, at least as filtered through the media, is saying that women should be to the side, should be off to the side of the screen, should be in revealing clothes, should be supportive of men, should not be talking at a high intellectual level. What are you going to do about it? That's not something where you can go into the house. So now you say, well, the media has this power. Let's ask the media to try and change the narrative a little bit. And so there, UNICEF, but others are working with the media powers in, in India to say that at the level of commercials first, and later on in some of the scripted dramas, we're going to equalize that more. We're going to show women having more agency, smiling more, maybe sometimes being out there without a man in, in the frame, being at the center of, of the drama and not just the domestic drama, but growing, living, loving, working. And over time, hopefully we'll get more of a balance because we've seen again and again and again from the research that this is important. As soon as you have a personality come out and say, you know, I was depressed, I had postpartum depression or I was abused. That unplugs thousands, millions of people that say, ah, at last I can speak about it. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with these media representations. Ah, thank God they're showing. UNICEF for a long time in, in uh, Bangladesh worked on a, a cartoon um, of a young girl, Mina. And you know she was like in the eight to 11 doing domestic chores. Would she go to school, uh, relations with her kids and, and so on. It was a lovely series and people enjoyed it and it made them think differently about their daughters. Mm -hmm. That was retired. Now it's like eight or 10 years down the road and people keep calling and saying, we want to have this 
We, wow. we want to see what's happened to Mina. And so now they're going to create new content. And now Mina's going to be at the end of her high school years. Mina's in a midlife crisis. <laughs> yes, right. But, but it's a cartoon, but it's that important. So in mm -hmm. ads, in the cartoons, in the movies, in the scripts, this is getting back to the your question, you know, what, what can you do? Yes, a lot of it has to occur with that direct face-to-face -face or community level, challenging norms, finding ways to make people see the effects of it. Sometimes you can do systems and sometimes you need to work even at the broader level of representation and in, 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 in the visibility of the persons and their dignity and their aspirations and the whole of media. And of course, you know, we can't set up alternative channels, uh, television channels, no way. So you work with the Bollywood folks, you work with the the persons that come up with the TV, and hopefully they're enlightened, or if not, you try and work with them to see the consequences, and then you bring in someone like Gina Davis to say, you know, look, we looked at we looked at the last four hundred thousand um, um, commercial spots on internet, and this is what we find. Do you think this is right? Do you think this is what you would want your daughter to take away? Ah, then you get sometimes the the moment. Ah, yeah, that's right. I would not want my family to act out the way that we see people acting here. It's so you're talking about a lot of different, you know, the different methods we could do to help promote dignity and really shows how important the concept of dignity is to reaching gender equality because it gives a standard for what to promote, how to make women more equal, whether it be media or wherever else. And I was just wondering, what are some of the challenges you've come across or that you foresee in doing work that promotes dignity or just in utilizing and trying to operationalize the concept of dignity in this kind of work in general? Yeah. Well, the first one, because it's it struck so close to home for us, for me at least, was uh, the difficulty of measuring it. That's why we we launched an effort to try and just create a compendium of, of methods that try and define and measure dignity. And our, our wonderful colleague Suparna found 18, but there are more that have occurred since then. But we also found is that tremendous heterogeneity of concepts, of definitions, of methods, of sectors, and so on, so that there is no core of it. There are some things that are widely used, self-esteem scales, cultural value scales, that you say, oh, they've been used enough that we, we, we can begin to believe that they have some relevance across uh, many, many places, but still, it's a highly uncertain world. I was going to say, just going off that, how do we go from where we're at now to using that information. So this compendium of different ways we could measure dignity, the different definitions, how do we go and use that information to make it useful? So that normal role of social science of probing and testing and, and proofing. Uh, but the other thing, one of the obstacles is that you cannot expect people to change their, their belief systems entirely. And you therefore better have very moderate hopes and you look for incrementalism over time. Um, one of the thought experiments we did was about young migrants uh, and especially they cross borders. They tend to cross borders within a region where there's language and other kinds of familiarities, but other times they go, uh, they go far. Many young people in, in South Asia go to the Middle East, go to Europe, go to Southeast Asia, Malaysia. And there they're in an entirely different social setting where even if they may be in clusters of, of uh, people, you know, a small group of people from their own area but are working in a certain kind of thing like resorts or whatever, still they're in the, the majority culture has different values. Now, you are never 
going to convince the parents of these young people that it is okay to change your faith. They don't want to hear about your religious skepticism, right? And so don't expect that that concept of autonomy and agency is going to be accepted to the level of apostasy or complete sexual liberation. It's not going to happen, at least in the home culture. And the young people want to maintain affectionate relationships with their parents and their home culture. So one barrier is your own sense of how far it can go. But then what's more realistic? Well, you know, when they're traveling, they're saving up money. So what can their future be? Now it's more, now that they have broader possibilities, you can have a dialogue, not only with them, but they in their home community. Issues of entrepreneurship, it would never be considered, you know, me give money to my daughter so she can do something. No, but if she's earned some of her own money and has already shown that, that, uh, that, that, that capacity to negotiate the business world and the wider world and wants to come back and do something, now you've got a new reality that people will accept. So your obstacle is to try and, and, and is to find out where are those barriers you're not going to overcome? Where are the things that, where there is some space that do promote dignity, but also have a good social benefit for the child and, and, and the community? Uh, one of the things that happens to an organization like the Persons in UNICEF is that we get these monofocuses. If your child protection, you define all of the positive outcomes as child protection. If it happens in business, you don't really care, right? Someone in business, if they feel that, you know, the, the person as a result of da, 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 is now just expanding their knowledge through education, but they're not going to be applying it to make more money, what do they care? So we also have to step back and say, listen, I mean, human beings are complex and, and, and it's lovely that they are. And agency means being allowed to do things that yeah, you yourself and you, your discipline wouldn't actively select. But modern societies need to have that complexity, that division of labor, the different kinds of thoughts, and let a million flowers bloom. Like in an ideal world, what would you see for like the future of dignity in UNICEF and related programming? We have made certain that our staff understand human rights instruments and human rights language. So we already have a conceptual basis. What I would like to see then is more attention to these psychological constructs that people bring, including religiosity, right? Mm -hmm. But also this concept of, of dignity and attentiveness to the two main streams of it, the socially determined by your community, as well as the intrinsic. One of the things that I, I've just noticed about a UNICEF is that it's psychologically dominated by the funding uh, a world, the Northern, the more secular, the, mm -hmm. the more technocratic world. And the rest of the world, it hasn't gotten that far and doesn't always want to go in that direction. So one of the things you have to see then is more respect for, for local knowledge, but also local values. When you do your theories of change, not only do you need to put in, well, okay, how does, how does dignity impact this? Where do I see it? And, and how can we then use it or make people aware of it, but also what's the end goal here? What is acceptable yeah. to this society? And maybe we just have to say that's as far as we're, we're, we're going to be able to get. Sometimes you and can like, have- what is our role in saying yeah. what's dignified or not, totally. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and sometimes you're not going to get as, 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 as far as you want. And that's okay, as long as you've not made the situation worse and you've left some capacities and some 
some uh, resilience. The, the communities that we're working with have some obstacles toward girls realizing their rights. Absolutely, we want to see those, those changes. So I wanna see some greater humility in the part of UNICEF. I want better theorizing, um, but done at the, at the community level. I want more realistic targeting that includes the dignity aspects and isn't just trying to change everything, but trying to work incrementally with where the, the folks are to, to where they can go. And then later on, they will choose further to go, opposed to the, the emphasis on sites and services and government systems and policies. Sometimes mm -hmm. those are necessary, but they're the supporting elements towards something bigger, which is the, the, the love of a parent for a child, the desire of the community to protect its members, the community itself wants to thrive, um, you know, we're not all atomized, isolated individuals. People have rights to be in communities, and we should we should value that um, a, a bit more than we do. I think. Yeah, I think all of that kind of nuance gets lost in the focus of the funding and the sites and et cetera you were talking about, and things are hyper focused on to the detriment of the like more nuanced connections that are forming all these yeah situations um yeah and it's not, and, and so i just say it's not just gender too i mean the 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 convention of the for the rights of people with disabilities was i don't know what it is 18 20 years mm. old something like that so slow so slow the work and oftentimes we have um companion governments that are really quite quite thoughtful and say we want to do more but they find it hard not simply to find the personnel and the funds, but the community understanding is if the child yeah. is disabled, then they have no capacities. Hide them away. Are they being beaten at home and sexually abused? Who cares? Kind of thing. So the dignity is is a is a is a issue everywhere you go. It is very, very, very poignant and important in gender. Disability is also the other one in which I mean I would love the world to have 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 a, a conversion and and take it more seriously and then you know we always talk about intersectionality so a girl that's a migrant a rural girl with low educational levels and uh, has a disability of some type gets burned you know in the fire or something oh my god you can just match those combinations with positive and negative outcomes and you see how fast people fall off when they have those those reinforcing kinds of, of, of issues. I was wondering if you wanted to say anything quick before we ended our conversation today. Everybody feels it inside themselves. Everybody knows what it means for themselves. Never then impinge on another person's dignity in the way that you would not want that to happen. The number one in, in religions, they, they, the comparative religion folks, they said, what's the most common thing that you find across the whole world's religions? And it is some version of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And sometimes hugely complex and sophisticated things can be reduced to very small and easy to understand aphorisms. And that is one. Dignity is at that root. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Ask others to do for others as they would wish to be done for themselves. We can get that kind of understanding and tie it back to religion or just our individual psychology or just the experience of our loved ones. We will understand and support, support one another much better than we do.